Most of the questions have to do with what was just covered, so he has the largest share. Other ones, Phil, and then some miscellaneous ones uh, that I'll pick up, and there is some overlap. Uh, if you still have any others, still write them down and keep those cards and letters coming, and we'll try to answer as many as possible. I didn't see any stump the preacher hard questions, but, well, we'll see what we can do. Uh, Justin, how about you? Start. Okay. Are you still sorting them out? No, that's fine. Do we just go one to one? One question. One at a time, unless they're like two on the same point. You can. Okay. Okay. Uh, Justin, do you believe most Word Faith TV preachers are atheists? Can y'all hear me? You can. Okay. Um, no, I, I don't believe they're atheists because theologically, I don't believe there is such a thing as an atheist. I mm -hmm. think that everyone knows. Uh, that there is a creator. Their conscience tells them that. So in short, no, I don't believe that they're atheists, uh, but they are idolaters. So they have created a false god after their own image, and they worship that god just like uh, they're worshiping a golden calf. So they, they hate the god of the Bible, but they've created a god after their own image, a god that they like, not the god yeah. of the Bible. So, so what do you got? Uh, this one is addressed to Justin and Phil. And I ask, what is the biblical warrant for modern-day Bible counselors? Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm not sure if it's asking, is there a specific command for uh, counselors? Uh, in which case, I would say, well, yes, all of the texts in the New Testament that tell us to encourage one another and to uh, speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and all that, uh, all of those, when you put them together, it's pretty clear that the counsel and encouragement that we're obliged to give to one another needs to be biblically based. And um, compare that then to the wisdom that says, or to the texts that say the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. And it ought to make you sort of skeptical of what the secular experts say about psychology and all of that. Uh, John MacArthur wrote a book some 30 years ago pointing out that psychology isn't really a science. It's, uh, it's more of a, uh, it's like a religious belief in that you have to take it by faith. Uh, and he also suggested that uh, psychoanalysis is, to this generation, what phrenology was to the Victorian era. Phrenology was a, a pseudoscience that claimed you could you could uh, help a person with their emotional and spiritual problems by analyzing the bumps on their heads. And I'm sure you've seen the diagrams of heads that are, you know, drawn into quarters and stuff like that and supposedly tell you what a bump here would mean and a bump there would mean. And MacArthur was saying that, uh, and, I, and I think he's absolutely right, that today's psychology is a similar kind of pseudoscience. Psychologists can't really cure any kind of spiritual malady, and in fact, it doesn't seem to be their goal. What psychologists want is a series of appointments that you pay for where you become dependent on, on the counselor. And um, biblical counseling shouldn't be that way. Our, our advice to one another as Christians needs to be biblically based, and it, it isn't a kind of therapy either. Um, so, in general, that would be my answer, that uh, the warrant for, the biblical warrant for modern-day Bible counselors it goes to all of us as Christians, that we're to encourage one another uh, with the Word of God. I'll add a little bit to that, because someone asked me yeah, a question recently, maybe the same person. Um, what is generally called biblical or Christian counseling was the revolution started in the early 70s, mainly by Jay Adams and, and ones like that, saying we need to stick with what the Bible says, sola scriptura counseling. And there become different varieties of that as opposed to integrative counseling. Well, a little bit from the Freudians and Unions and all these others. Maybe throw in the Bible if you want, but we should do it. One exception would be if it's an organic problem, then we don't practice medicine. We try to put them in touch with a Christian doctor. Um, do you have that card again? Yeah. Um, 
I thought of one aspect of this, the biblical one for modern-day Bible counseling. Every Christian ought to be able to counsel from the Scripture. That was Jay Adams' basic book, Competent to Counsel. If you know your Bible, you're competent. Some more competent than others. Pastors especially. But then I believe that there are some that are especially gifted to. For example, 1 Corinthians 12 does mention in the catalog of gifts, gifts the word of wisdom. Charismatics take that to, you know, this Pat Robertson thing, I see a flying loaf, you know, um, you know, and somebody out there has a toothache, and I claim you're here. No, that's, that's baloney. But uh, the biblical word is it does mention the word of wisdom. So that would be someone that is gifted with wisdom to speak advice, like a counselor, but it's got to be biblically based. Okay, I think it's my turn. Um, two here overlap. Uh, what is the point of modalism, meaning how does the heresy benefit the false teacher? How would you suggest talking with family members who have been in oneness Pentecostalism all their life? Modalism is oneness. Uh, they they completely deny the Trinity or they will completely redefine it by saying it's different manifestations, not three persons, not three members. And so they'd say it's oneness, Jesus only, modalism, dynamic monarchialism, patripassionism, goes under different names, all wrong. Uh, they don't deny the deity of Christ, they just deny the Trinity. So they're, in some sense, begging Jehovah's Witnesses that deny the deity of Christ as well as the Trinity. But, uh, but it's, not, it's not biblical. The differences between the members. Uh, it was the Son that became a man, not the Father, not the Spirit. It was the Spirit that came on Pentecost, not the Father or the Son. And, uh, and then they get jumbled up. Um, you said, well, what about Christ's baptism? The Father spoke, the Spirit came, and then some of them said, well, Jesus was practicing ventriloquism. He was throwing his voice. No, to whom did Jesus offer the sacrifice if he was the Father? And so it doesn't have a leg to stand on. It's certainly not biblical, but it does have implications. Uh, for example, the second question, what is the point of modalism, meaning how does the heresy benefit the false teacher? First off, the advocates of modalism are not well taught. Very few of them have been to seminary, or at least a legitimate seminary, as opposed to a degree mill where they just print up their own degrees and pretend that they know what they're talking about. They make it up as they go along. You remember Benny Hinn's idea that each of the trinity is a trinity in himself, so it's really nine, not just three. He thought he was being profound, but it was heresy. But it benefits the false teacher because they prey upon people that are not well taught about biblical trinitarianism, and it opens the door to other serious errors. Got anything to add to that, uh, Justin? Okay, your turn. Okay. Uh, have you seen anyone? Have you seen anyone speak a squirrel into existence yet? Uh, I've, I've seen some squirrely teachers. And then, uh, truly, have you had any false teachers accept your challenges to prove their abilities? So there's something behind that squirrel into existence. I put up a video on my YouTube channel a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, uh, about this guy named Bobby Connor. He's one of these uh, word faith heretics. And he says that he was out deer hunting one time, and God started talking to him, and God said, hey, you know, Bobby, uh, William Branham, who's a heretic from yesteryear, William Branham spoke a squirrel into existence, and Bobby said, yeah, Lord, I know. I've heard that story. And, and then the Lord said to Bobby, he said, well, Bobby, you know I'm no respecter of persons, don't you? And Bobby said, oh, boy. And so he said, Lord, I think I know where you're going with this. And so... Bobby then spoke a squirrel into existence. He said, A little sapling that was just, there we go, there was a little sapling just about 10 yards away from me, and I spoke, and the squirrel just came into existence, and, and then it uh, disappeared after a few seconds. And he spoke a squirrel into existence. So that's what's behind that question. Uh, have I had any false teachers accept my challenges to prove their abilities? So um, I've, I've put a couple of challenges out there. I've challenged uh, any of the prophets to prophesy when the war in Ukraine would end. I did that last year. Nobody took me up on it. I also have another kind of ongoing challenge. You claim to be able to heal people. Heal me. Heal me. 
and I say that because, not because I'm just itching to be healed, but they actually claim not just that God heals through them, but they actually make the claim that they heal people. Andrew Womack, Todd White, they claim that power, they can feel power going out of them into the sick person. Andrew Womack is so bold that he says, I'm not worried about getting sickness from someone. In fact, I can reach out and touch someone who's sick and healing power will go out of me into them. And so I have an open challenge, heal me. And they would say, oh, well, you know, Justin doesn't have enough faith. Now, wait a minute. There were many people that Jesus healed in his ministry who had absolutely no, didn't even know who Jesus was. And he healed them. I don't have any faith in these faith healers, granted. But I have 100% faith that God is able to heal me of my cerebral palsy. I, I know he can. I don't doubt that at all. So I've got that faith, so I'm a, I'm a leg up, if you will, even on some of these people that Jesus healed who didn't have any faith at all. So, uh, heal me. You claim to be able to heal people, heal me. This would be a bonanza for your ministry. <laughs> I mean, it would shut me up. Oh, man, it would shut me up. Uh, I'd have to change my theology, and it would be a huge win for the charismatic world. So... Heal me. But nobody's taking me up on it. about those occasions where you and others that are seriously afflicted have shown up at their healing services and they push you aside, they hide you, because they know they can't heal you? That's right. That's right. So I've been to a number of Benny Hinn Crusades. One of them uh, was working with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation because they were doing an expose on Benny Hinn. And uh, I went, I got into a healing line trying to get healed. You know, obviously I knew Benny Hinn was a fake, but... Uh, they wanted, they were following me with their cameras. I was actually wearing some eyeglasses with a pinhole camera in the bridge of them. And they had some of their people following me with cameras. And uh, so you get in line at a Benny Hinn crusade to come up on the platform to give your testimony of healing. And uh, so I, I'm in line. And anybody who looks like me is kept well away from the stage because I have a, a disability that is easily seen. You know, I, I'm not a, a candidate for a psychosomatic healing. Okay, no matter how good of a mood I'm in, you take my crutches away from me, boom, you know, <laughs> down goes Frazier. So I'm not a candidate. So as I was getting kind of close to the stage, one of Benny Hinn's staffers came over to me, a woman, and she said, sir, just step aside and pray for your healing. And this was caught on camera and put on uh, CBC. And so anybody that's in a wheelchair, anybody who's obviously disabled, uh, they keep well away from the platform. It's only the psychosomatic healings that are allowed up on stage. Uh, what should our response be to professed followers of Christ who see nothing wrong with living together, cohabiting, as long as they're not having sex? Well, first of all, great skepticism, especially, I think what this is referring to is what I described last night, where two homosexuals have a relationship which they acknowledge is romantic, and they see it as familial, that they're, they constitute a family, and they're living together, uh, and they claim to be celibate. I'm sorry, but I'm not, I'm not gullible enough to accept that they really are being celibate, because they've already confessed that they feel a strong temptation to, uh, you know, ha have conjugal relationships with, with one another. The fact that they're living in the same house, I would view that uh, the same as I would view a man who would, you know, cohabit with a, with a pretty young girl he's not married to. Uh, I wouldn't believe him if he said he was celibate. You just, it, it stretches gullibility. And I don't think it's unkind to question a questionable claim like that, particularly when someone is already telling you that he's accepted these sinful desires that assault his mind and heart. So, yep. and, and, and therefore my response would be to rebuke him. Yeah. Tell him one or the other has to go, or maybe both of them. Okay, here's one that has a simple answer, but I'll give a little bit more uh, details. I was baptized as a child and only uh, came to know the Lord later in life. Should I be baptized again? Yes. 
Let me add to that. The Bible does teach believers only baptism. Now I'll qualify and say many of my great heroes were those that baptized infants. John Calvin, Augustine, Jonathan Edwards, and on it goes. They were just simply wrong. It was leftover Catholicism. But the Bible clearly teaches the order that you repent and believe and then you are baptized. And so we've had a number of people in our church that ask this very same question. Either as an infant or as maybe an 11-year-old at a VBS or a camp or something like that, yes, I got baptized. I was baptized at age 11. I had the clue what salvation was until I was 20 and got saved. And I said, should I get baptized again? And the Presbyterian pastor said, no, once is enough. But I kept searching the scriptures. And um, it was the late Errol Hulse that convinced me. He said, look at all the examples and commands in the Bible and put on one column believer's baptism and the other column infants. They were all on this side. There was like 20-something commands and examples very clearly for believer's baptism and not one on the other side. The closest they could come was, well, Lydia and her family, and they assume that includes infants. doesn't say infants. That's right. So that is very clear what the scriptures say. Uh, I have a paper in the lobby. I have papers on everything in the lobby. We've got 300, but one of them specifically on what the Bible says about baptism. And I preached on it recently, but I also have a CD, and you can see me afterwards if you want, get it, give you a free copy, Should I Be Baptized? And I answer a lot of the hard questions, but it boils down to that. What does the Bible say? All the commands and examples are for believers, none for infants, or people that were not necessarily infants, but like 11, 15, whatever, but they were not saved. Members of our church have come to me and said this very same thing, and I say, Let's finish the job. You need to get baptized as a believer. Not to get saved, but because you are saved. Okay, Justin, your turn. Okay. All right. Uh, there, this page has two questions on it. And so the, to the person, one of your questions will be answered in the morning, so I'll, I'll table that one. The other question on this page, though, do you have concerns about the teaching of Beth Moore? Mm. <laughs> All together, amen. Can you yeah. answer that in one word? I can. Yes. <laughs> yes. I can answer it in two words, but that's already been done. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, okay, where to start? So Beth Moore, Beth Moore is egalitarian. She believes that women can preach on a Sunday morning. She herself does preach from time to time on Sunday mornings. So she's full-blown egalitarian. She is social justice uh, everything. She's fully woke. Uh, Beth Moore will not answer the question, what do you believe about homosexuality? She refuses to answer that question. Of course, by not answering that question, she has answered the question, right? Okay, so uh, she is egalitarian, egalitarian, she's social justice, she is okay with gay Christians. In fact, one of her good friends is Jonathan Merritt, the son of James Merritt, former president of the SBC. Jonathan Merritt is an open homosexual, and she endorses him. So she has planted her flag, even though she refuses to, but she has. So um, also she is, she's charismatic. She's she is she's all the worst. You think about every major heresy within evangelicalism. She represents all of them in one person: social justice, charismatic, woke, uh, theological liberal, all of it. Uh, she claims that God speaks to her. She gets dreams and visions. So she's every bad thing about evangelicalism you can find in one person in Beth Moore. Uh, is she sincere? Very well may be, but sincerity is not the issue. Truth is the issue. And uh, Beth Moore is getting progressively worse. So the stuff that she was putting out 20 years ago, I'm not going to say was necessarily good, but let's put it this way. It was less bad than what she's doing today. Uh, she's getting worse. And that's the exact opposite trajectory of you, what you would expect in a Bible teacher. If, if the Lord allows me to live another 10 or 20 years, I would hope that 10, 20 years from now, 
My teaching will be better than it is today. That's just what you would expect, a normal trajectory. Uh, she's going the opposite direction. So uh, I have no, no hesitation at all calling Beth Moore a false teacher. All right, this question is, was homosexuality different in Bible times? And this stems from the claim of a number of evangelicals who have tried to uh, defend homosexuality by saying what scripture condemns is not the loving relationship of two consenting adults, but what was happening in Bible times was that people were taking people into slavery and forcing them uh, to be engaged in homosexual activity. So it was the, the uh, basically it was homosexual rape, and that's what scripture condemns. That's simply not true. And if you just read Romans 1, for example, it's pretty clear uh, that Paul is condemning people who willingly embrace these things. And he says, even the women exchange the natural use for that which is against nature. So he's, he's talking about two women who are voluntarily having a physical relationship that's forbidden. And uh, so the answer to the, the actual question, was it different in Bible times, is yes and no. I think it was more prevalent, maybe, and there was less of a stigma attached to it, although that's changing so that our culture is embracing open homosexuality even more than it would have been practiced in Roman times. So, um, so it wasn't different in any, any substantial way that would change the biblical condemnation of homosexuality, uh, which I think is the real question. When we read the biblical condemnation of homosexuality, are we talking about what today's LGBTQ people are doing? And the answer is yes. It's all forbidden. Yes, it's all forbidden. Um, we had another one that touched on the question of baptism, so I'll give a quick answer and then another one. What does being baptized mean? It's a symbolic thing. It does not confer saving grace. The Bible does not teach baptismal regeneration. Catholic Church teaches that, Episcopalianism, most Lutherans, um, the, most so-called Christian church, the Disciples of Christ, Church of Christ. The Bible does not teach that you have to be baptized to get saved or that there's anything magic about holy war. So what does it mean? It's symbolism that you've already been saved. The most obvious one is being baptized in water symbolizes that your sins have been washed away, not by the water, but by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 6 brings in another aspect of the symbolism, that if you've been buried and risen to newness of life, that's what's captured in total immersion. And, you know, sprinkling doesn't symbolize that because you don't bury someone with a handful of dirt. You, you immerse them in the dirt. Another one would be the correlation between spirit baptism and water baptism. John said, I baptize in water. Jesus will baptize in the Holy Spirit. So there's a tie in there. But the main thing is it symbolizes that you have been saved and washed and not the other way around. Okay, short answer. Um, here's another good one. This one touches my heart. Can you speak to the importance of memorizing scripture? Amen. Read the Bible. And there are different plans of memorizing, like carrying cards. One day you learn a Bible verse a day, and end of the year you got, you know, 365. And in three years you got 1,000. Uh, but read the Bible, I would suggest at least a chapter a day. Did you know if you did a little over three chapters a day, you'd go through the whole Bible in a year? We've got a Bible reading plan out there in the free handouts so that you can do it in a year. If you do three a day and four on uh, Saturday and Sunday, the more you uh, read, the more you will find that you can memorize it. Uh, I've known people, in fact, I know two that have read the whole Bible 50 times. George Mueller did it in a hundred times. Luther read it twice a year, uh, read it through twice a year, A.W. Pink three times a year for many years. Go and do likewise. You can do it. Even when you don't feel like it, force yourself to do it. It's like your parents would say to your children, eat it. It's good for you. It is good for you. How? It helps you Bring it to mind. Remember David said, I have laid up your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. It's helpful to resist temptation. Jesus quoted scripture three times to resist the devil's temptation. It's a help in prayer. Many, a, immediate help in evangelism. Someone asks you hard questions. 
do a Google search. I've studied, oh, here's a good verse. God, but if it's not there, even the Holy Spirit can't bring it out of your memory if it's never been put into your memory. These are many other benefits of not only reading, but memorizing Scripture. I like that question. Good for you. Justin, your turn. Indeed. And just as a little tag along on that, if you go to my YouTube channel, I'm doing a daily Bible reading every day on my YouTube channel. It's from the Legacy Standard Translation. And uh, by the end of the year, we will have gone through the entire Old Testament and then Psalms, Proverbs, and the New Testament twice. And so that, that's not a substitute for reading it yourself, but if you'd like to have that playing in the background as you're you know, washing dishes or whatever, uh, that's available for you. Okay, so I'm going to combine these two questions because they're related. Uh, how do you balance watching all of these false teachers and stomach all the heresy and blasphemy <laughs> you see? That's a great question. So it might surprise you that I don't watch as much of this stuff as you might think. Uh, I don't just wake up in the morning and start watching TBN. I, um, a lot of the stuff that I have in my, sem- in my seminar people send me, and, uh, sorry, brother. Okay. A lot of the stuff in my seminar uh, people send me, they text me, some of my friends, or people email it to me, it's like, oh, wow, yeah, and send it to me, have you seen this, so I'll check it out. And, but, uh, I don't just watch this stuff. Uh, I feed myself on good spiritual nourishment. I listen to good preachers that I enjoy. I listen to MacArthur. I listen to Bodie Balkum. I listen to Steve Lawson. I listen to Mike Riccardi. I listen to Phil Johnson. I listen to uh, Jim Osmond and some others. So I, I feed my soul because it, you're right. It would be poison if that's all I ever listened to. That would be bad. So. Um, Anyway, more good coming in than the, the heresy. Uh, related, is the full series of Clouds Without Water on YouTube? It is, but I don't know that it's all in one place. It may be. I don't have it all on my channel, on my YouTube channel, uh, but you can find it in different places on YouTube. You can kind of piece it together. Uh, Lord, DVD. In the DVD. Oh, that's right, the DVD. I do have some DVDs available. In they the, sold out. Oh, they sold out. Yeah. Okay, seeing if I had one in here, but I don't. So they're sold out. But if you go to my website, justinpeters.org, I stayed up all night long trying to come up with a name for my website. So, uh, <laughs> but you can go to justinpeters.org and you can order a DVD set, actually two discs in each set of the entire Clouds Without Water uh, seminar and some other resources I have available on my website. Okay. All right, two questions, and I'll answer them both. Uh, what does the Bible mean when it says the cowardly will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? Who are the cowardly? That word cowardly is used three times in Scripture. And Jesus uses it twice, once to the apostles when he says, why are you so cowardly and unbelieving? And then, of course, in the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation at the end, it says uh, that the cowardly uh, are... I think it's in the book of Revelation. Anyway, the cowardly uh, uh, are cast into the lake of fire, I think it is. Let me just check here. Yeah, Revelation 21.8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and so on, they're cast into the lake of fire. Uh, So every time, notice that uh, each of the three times that the word cowardly is used in Scripture, it's paired with unbelieving. And what it's talking about is that sort of timidity that comes with unbelief, where you're afraid to take a stand or afraid to speak the truth because you're just a craven coward. It's not talking about a legitimate fear of something that might be stronger than you or whatever, but it's a fear to speak the truth primarily out of unbelief. And I think when Scripture uses cowardly in a negative sense like that, it's speaking about a, a cowardliness, a cowardice that stems from sinful unbelief. Second question is, what is the sin of gluttony? That's a great question. The Hebrew word that's translated glutton in the Proverbs is actually a broader word than just a guy who eats a lot. It includes that. But it's talking about a person whose life is marked by partying and excess in a lot of ways. So uh, the glutton, as it's talked about, is 
it, when you see that in scripture, it's referring to someone who's a kind of a party animal. So and in fact, hedonist. Yeah, it's a hedonist. And in fact, remember, that is one of the complaints that the Pharisees threw at Jesus, comparing him to John the Baptist, who, who wasn't eating and drinking. And they said, but here's Jesus, and he's a glutton and, and hangs around with sinners. So uh, that was the implication. They were saying, he's just a party animal which he wasn't, but that was the accusation they threw at him. So it's, it's more than just someone who eats a lot, although it includes that. It's a person whose whole life is given over to sensual pleasures, and that's what drives his appetites. Okay. Two that tie together. First one, a little bit harder to answer from different angles. Why did Adam and Eve sin? Let's look at it from their perspective and then from God's. Why did they sin? For slightly different reasons. First Timothy 2 says, Eve was deceived, but Adam was not. Of course, there's a question, was he standing next to her? Because it does say in the Hebrew, she gave to her husband with her. But she was deceived, and that might fall into the category of what the book, book of Numbers call a sin of ignorance. It's still a sin, but it's somewhat like a naive thing. But Adam, he went into it with his eyes wide open. But it was sin. Uh, why? How could they sin if they were sinless? They were innocent, somewhat naive. They were the only people on earth. Uh, and they'd never seen sin before. But that's never an excuse. Ignorance of the law is no excuse and so forth. But uh, they did sin. How could sinless beings sin? because they were sinless but not impeccable. Jesus was impeccable. Boy, there's a good question. Could Jesus sin? No, absolutely not. Because being God, he could not sin. Being man, he could be tempted, but his deity protected his humanity from ever being able to sin. So I'm very firm on that. But Adam and Eve were not created impeccable. Uh, Jonathan Edwards had an interesting answer to this, kind of like Murphy's Law. God created with the ability to sin, and so if they had the ability, it was inevitable that they would eventually sin. What brought that about? God is not the author or promoter of sin, but what God did was simply take off the restraints, and they fell by their own choice. That's not free will defense of anything, but God did not directly cause them to sin. God just simply said, I will take off the restraints, and they chose it. We should pray that God does not take the restraints off of us, or we will certainly sin. The next part of this is, why do other people sin if Adam and Eve were the only ones who sinned? Well, Adam and Eve were the only ones to sin because they were the only people on earth at that time. But I don't think that's what you're getting at. They sinned, and everybody since then has have sinned. Uh, Romans 5, 12, and many other verses, everybody has sinned. This touches on the great biblical doctrine of original sin. We inherit Adam's sin, not Eve's sin, although she was the first to sin. He was the head of the human race. Jesus became the head of a second race, and he never sinned. But uh, we're born with Adam's sin, and sin being sin means we're born guilty. Whereas I said with the pastors today, if we're guilty, we're damnable. Those that deny original sin say, no, there can be sin without guilt. And I say, would you please explain how you can have sin without guilt? No way. It's like separating um, uh, oxygen from air. It's no longer air. It's not breathable. So everybody has sinned, and we inherit that, not just the tendency, but the necessity of sin. We are born sinners because we are born with the sinful nature. And so that's why everybody sins, without exception, except Jesus. He did not inherit that sin. Why? His father was God, not Joseph. That was a necessity of the virgin birth, among other reasons. It protected his deity. It protected his sinless humanity. And therefore, he never sinned. He's the only one in that category. Okay, Justin, back to you. Okay. How do you talk with your teenagers about not singing Bethel Hillsong music in church? So I... Uh, I would assume you heard what I said earlier in my presentation about Bethel and Hillsong. And I said that right at the end, so maybe it was written before I dealt with that. But let me add to what I said. Uh, impress upon your teenagers that when, when you're listening to Christian music, you shouldn't do so 
just from a, a desire of entertainment. Uh, even when we're listening to Christian music, even that should be an act of worship. So when we listen to Christian music, I mean, if you want to listen to secular music uh, as entertainment, that's fine. But when you're listening to Christian music, that's not our entertainment. That is about worship. God is spirit, must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. And uh, tell your teenagers that Bethel and Hillsong are cults. And uh, everything that we do, we should do to the glory of God. And there is no way to listen to music coming from a cult to the glory of God. It's just not possible. So uh, impress your teenager with those truths. This is not about entertainment. This is about worship. God is holy, and he has a way that he must be worshipped in spirit and truth. And you cannot do that by listening to music that comes from a cult. All right, this question, should we support Israel and why? Uh, my answer would be generally yes. I, I don't, that's not to say that, it, that national Israel has always been right in everything they do. And it's also important to remember that national Israel today is not the exact equivalent of Israel in Scripture. Uh, however, I think in the conflict in the Middle East, uh, Israel definitely has the moral advantage because the dispute over who owns that land is based on a lot of myths. The truth is there has never been, never been a Palestinian state uh, where the Palestinians ruled themselves in the land of Israel. Prior to the formation of Israel in the 1940s, Israel was ruled by the British Mandate. And prior to that, for a long string, all the way back to Roman times, Israel was uh, was ruled and fought over by all kinds of different people, the Ottomans and, and sometimes the Christians, and, and it, it just traded hands so many times. But the fact is, as believers, and this person asks specifically for religious reasons, as believers, we know, don't we, that that land was part of the, the Abrahamic covenant that was promised to Abraham and his offspring forever. And that is where, when Jesus comes back, he will rule from. And Jesus himself said uh, in Luke 21, 24, that Jerusalem would be trodden down by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So you take that literally, you have to believe that there is a time yet future when Jerusalem will be totally liberated from Gentile control, and Scripture says Christ will set up his throne and rule from there with a rod of iron. I look forward to that. In the meantime, I don't accept the claim that anyone else has a proprietary right to that land or that city. And in fact, the Palestinians who have... Uh, you see what's happened in the recent news, that Palestinians have given their government over to terrorist organizations and mismanagement and all that. It's really hard not to see why we ought to be supportive of Israel. But also, Psalm 122, verse 6 says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper who, who, uh, who love thee. So uh, I think we're, we're commanded to sort of see that land as uh, something different from the rest of the world. Uh, and it's so much at the heart of the biblical story of redemption. I don't know how you can divorce it from all of that and say, yeah, the Jews ought to get out of that land. I know there are Christians who believe that, uh, who would say that the Jewish nation doesn't exist as the people of God anymore because they've rejected Christ. And to them I say, read Romans 11. They're going to be grafted back in. And I think that also includes that they will take possession of that land. Yeah. I look forward to that day. And, I, and someone's going to ask, you think the current war is this? I don't know. Everybody who's predicted that in the past has been wrong. So, so it could be, but I'm not going to say so dogmatically. Can I add to that? Romans 11, very significant. It does promise a future for Jews, the vast majority becoming Christians. They will recognize Jesus was their Messiah and cause them to mourn. But since amongst Jews today, even many secular Jews, they say the land, Haaretz, is still very important to our identity. So for that reason, if nothing else, 
we should say we need to support Jews with a view to their future believing in the Messiah. And that might figure into them getting, getting their attention saying, yeah, maybe Jesus was the Messiah. So. Yeah, even, you know, even some of their political leaders have said over the past 40 or 50 years that their best allies and closest friends mm. have been evangelical Christians who simply take the Bible literally and believe that they do have a right to that land. Okay, uh, here's my turn. Um, why doesn't God give people visions anymore? Similar question, why doesn't God allow people to have this gift of prophecy, tongues, a miraculous healing? By the way, good handout out there uh, on the little black table by Phil Johnson, Did Tongues Cease? Very good article. It's the same thing why God doesn't give visions or angel visits and stuff like that. It has to do with what theologians call the progress of not just redemption, but the progress of revelation. You look over the history of Old Testament, and it was more and more prophets, more and more clarity about the coming Messiah, more and more promise about the future for Israel, and so forth. And as it says in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, God in various ways displayed his, his glory and his revelation, but now it's fully come in his Son. That has implications for the progress of revelation. Now that Jesus has come and he gave certain uh, gifts to the apostles and their immediate associates, once the canon of scripture is completed, that is significant. The completion of special revelation, the means of special revelation, therefore, are no longer available. Dreams, visions, tongues, angel visits. Why? Messiah has come. The fullness of revelation has been complete. Those gifts, therefore, were only temporary. And even in the old, in the latter part of the New Testament era, they began to phase out, and then it eventually did cease. I think we're in agreement. That's a summary of cessationism. Yep, good one. Okay, Justin, your turn. Okay. Uh, Justin mentioned a few times about uh, family being difficult to speak the truth to. Have you had any experience with this personally? If so, how did you deal with it? Is there a point that when you stop bothering them with the truth? So, uh, yes, I have had some experience with that, and yes, it can be very difficult. Um, there's something about the family dynamic that makes it really hard for us to speak truth to our family members. There's just something about that family dynamic. Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown among his own countrymen. So uh, it makes it hard, it, it does. But continue, as far as like, when do you stop bothering them? Um, you know, if, if they tell you, I don't wanna talk about this anymore. You know, if they close the door, I would say don't try to kick the door open. If they close the door, then just, you know, give them the truth uh, as much as they will listen to it. But once they shut the door, I would say, you know, let them, let them shut that door. But if they, if they ever open it again, if they crack the door open, go right through it. You know, take any opportunity that you have. Absolutely, take that opportunity. And um, as I said this morning, Yes, it's hard. Yes, there's a risk. But at least you will have the blessing of having a clear conscience. And you never know when the light will come on with them. You never know. Sometimes the light will come on with folks at the most unexpected of times. And uh, if and when that light does come on with them, then they will look back on all those times when you did tell them the truth, and that will mean a lot to them. Uh, they will greatly appreciate that. So, uh, so I'd encourage you to do it. Um, and then a, there's a part two to this, and it's for Phil and Justin. How did you get involved with the American Gospel movie? Go ahead. Answer that first, and now. Okay. Well, so uh, American Gospel is done by Brandon Kimber, and I guess Brandon contacted me the first time seven or so years ago about the film, and. Uh, he had just come across my stuff, and uh, I got to know Brandon. He's a great guy. He really is. I, I really like him. He's a, he's a very kind of a low-key personality guy, very um, quiet uh, demeanor. Yeah, he used to do documentaries for one of the networks or something, right? I'm not sure, did yeah, he? Yeah, he, he did. He was like a 
documentarian in the secular world for a while. So he yeah. he had that skill and background. Yeah, yeah. And same with me. I didn't know him before, but he contacted me out of the blue and said, "Can I come and ask you some questions and, and film you?" And if I can do that, I'll do that with pretty much anybody. But he seemed to have decent credentials and all that. He came to my office, set up his camera, asked a bunch of questions, and I didn't think about it much again until the film came out. Oh, is that right? And then everybody was telling me, oh, I saw you on the film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I, it's almost like strange fire. I, I, I'm stopped by people. All the time. All the time. Happens to me, too. Yeah. That, so that it's they, been a great ministry, what he did. But. Yeah. Yeah. And he's got more projects coming out, too. Let me add one other thing, too, that when, when your relatives close the door, that doesn't mean that you failed or that the opportunities have ended. Like he said, they might open the door again. But also, remember what Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. That'll happen with your family as well. Uh, and sometimes it is best just to shut up and leave them alone, especially if you get the sense that they think you know, you're just harassing them. You don't want to harass them. Uh, and if they've heard the truth and so far rejected it, there's not much more you can do except pray for them and do that. God will give the increase many times. Yeah. All right, uh, here's a question. Both Justin and Phil have mentioned being a slave and being a servant. What is the biblical view of slavery? How should we as Christians feel about slavery? It's interesting that the Bible doesn't generally treat slavery as a moral evil. In fact, there are rules for slavery in the Old Testament. Uh, but you have to understand the historical context there. A lot of that was voluntary slavery. If you were a poor person and you couldn't provide for your family, you could basically voluntarily sell yourself into slavery. You would be owned by a master. You would be a slave. He would even pierce your ear to prove it. That was, that was the symbol of it. But uh, it, was a, it, was, it was actually a mercy to the slave who otherwise had no means of supporting himself. What, what scripture deplores, and the reason we in America tend to hate slavery, is because American slavery was based on man-stealing. And the evil there was man-stealing, kidnapping people and taking them away from their home and their place in order to force them into slavery. Scripture condemns that and always did. So if, if there seem to be mixed messages between the culture that says all slavery is wrong and scripture that doesn't condemn all slavery, that's why it's more than one kind. And the truth is, the way scripture portrays it, we are all slaves of someone. You have a master to whom you are accountable. Uh, and if, you're a, if, you're, if you've never been a slave of Christ, then you're enslaved to sin. So either way, there's a slavery. And Paul deals with this in Romans 6 and 7, where he talks about our enslavement to sin. And then he says, being set free from sin, we became slaves to righteousness and slaves to Christ. And meaning he owes, owns us because he purchased us. I, I talked about that earlier today. The redemption price was, was a means of, of purchasing a, a slave, basically. And by paying the redemption price for our sin, Christ purchased us, and with that, the right to be our master, and puts on us the obligation to obey him. And because we hate the idea of slavery so much, and have tried to whitewash it out of scripture, so that even most translations translate the word bondservant, or something other than slave, we, we tend not to think of it like that. But what scripture is actually portraying in our relationship with Christ is that we are his slaves. And we are, it is our duty to, to do what he tells us to do. And he owns us. So you are not your own, scripture says. You are bought with a price. That's the language of slavery. So slavery in and of itself is, is either morally good or bad depending on you know, what kind of slavery you're talking about. It's obviously bad and evil to be a slave of sin. But it's the height of righteousness to be a slave of Christ. Okay, another one. Someone had given a whole shoot of questions, so here's the next one. Uh, what are key verses to tell people if they want to be saved? Well, that's a good one. What, what must I do to be saved? Acts 16.31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Curiously, earlier this year, one of our church put together a chart, and we published it, and all it is is the words of Jesus Christ 
aimed toward evangelism. So we, we got to stack them in the lobby. We also have a, number, have a number of other tracks there that just simply list good verses to share with a non-Christian that they probably have never heard of. I would say verses that tell you succinctly something about God. Uh, Genesis 1-1, God is light, God is holy, verses like that. And then lead into all have sinned, and then that leads into who is Jesus, what did Jesus do, what do we have to do to be saved, such as repent and believe. And you can sum up the gospel by quoting these verses in order, not quite like the old Romans wrote, but that was a general idea. Who is God? We are sinners. There's the problem. What's the answer? Who Jesus is, what he did. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. What are we called upon to do? Repent and believe. That's the bare bones, but you can build it up a little bit more with various other verses. Okay, Justin, we're almost done. What do you okay. got? My last question. Is the International House of Prayer, formerly the Kansas City Prophets, in line with the New Apostolic Reformation, NAR, or the NAR and IHOP cults? Uh, yes, they are. So they are in line with NAR theology. Uh, some, have, some charismatics have tried to say that the New Apostolic Reformation doesn't even exist. Dr. Michael Brown has said that. I have an 800-page systematic theology of the New Apostolic Reformation. So this movement that does not exist has an 800-page systematic theology book. It's open theistic and all kinds of heresy, but yes. Uh, IHOP is in line with NAR theology. IHOP's led by Mike Bickle, and Mike Bickle endorses pretty much every false teacher under the sun. So, uh, yeah, it, it is a cult. It is a cult. They're known for their 24-7 prayer thing, uh, which in and of itself sounds good. They pray 24-7, you know, shifts and all that kind of stuff. But, but I've watched some of it. Uh, I mean, it's, it's your typical charismatic garbage. Um, so uh, there's some sincere people there, I'm sure. But again, sincerity is not the issue. Truth is the issue. Uh, I think you have to call Mike Bickle a false teacher and um, IHOP a cult. Yeah. Are you out of questions? Because I've got four more. I'm, I'm actually out. I think. Okay. What is a woman's role in a small group church setting in a co-ed group? Uh, I would say any, any gathering of the saints under the auspices of the church should be under the, ultimately under the leadership of elders, not meaning that an elder has to be there for every Bible study, but that they should ultimately be accountable. And because it's a gathering of the saints uh, as a subset of the church and, and under the oversight of the leaders of the church, I think the same rules apply in a small group setting that would apply when the entire congregation meets together. I don't think a woman should lead the discussion or be teaching scripture to men, even in a small group setting. Um, so that's my conviction. Uh, you can meet me up for it later. <laughs> Go ahead. You've got a long one there. Well, this one has three on it. Okay. Uh, why do they say this stuff when the Bible says, do not put words in Jesus' mouth that he did not say? That's I a like good it. question. That's a good one. The uh, Bible says three times in the Old Testament, do not add to his words nor subtract from them. Hold on, that's Deuteronomy 4.32, 12.32, and somewhere in Proverbs. And then remember the very last paragraph of the Bible. Uh, a curse is upon those that add to or subtract from God's words, especially those that are inspired. Why do people not? They don't believe the sufficiency of the Bible. They think, well, that's not enough. We've got to invent other words that we think Jesus told us. Uh, and maybe they even disagree with what's in the Bible. If it's not broke, don't fix it. And they're trying to fix that, something that's perfect. And that's how they inject their own visions and their own opinions and their own heresies. And I have no toleration from that. Um, there are other ways, like the so-called gift of prophecy today. Thus says the Lord, and they say, well, it's not always infallible, but it's, again, adding to God's word. There was one time where they actually write down those prophecies, mimeograph them, that's old, and then they stick it in the back of their Bible. Because <laughs> that's when we were young, remember? That, stuff? that was before photocopies. I do remember. I just... <laughs> 
I thought you must have a mimeograph machine with all the no. stuff you've got in your <laughs> No, we donated it six months ago. <laughs> but, uh, we donate the grace to you. <laughs> but back to the serious note here, there, it's serious. And another form of it is um, Jesus Calling. That was almost plagiarism from a book from 1938 yep. where a woman said it was called God Calling. And all it is is these voices that they hear from God. A lot of it is very shallow, schmaltzy, you know, I'm with you, don't be afraid. But then they bring in other things that are more serious. That's going against scripture, adding to God's word, and uh, it's dangerous. You got any more? Go. Do your last one, then I'll do my three. Okay. Coach, did you write this? <clears throat> How much are the, quote, free handouts? <laughs> did you do this? Okay. The free handouts are free. I have actually had people out there, while I'm standing next to the sign, say, how much are the free handouts? I say, which one? They say, the free, oh. The free handouts are free, but that's also an illustration. Grace is free, and yet some people say, what do I have to not do by faith, but what good works do I have to do? I said, no, it's free, F-R-E-E, -E, grace. You don't earn it. That's a hard thing for people to accept. Okay, Phil, you'll have the last Yeah, so, by the way, I have looked at those free handouts, and there's some great material there. And so I want to challenge somebody who is in Pastor Daniel's church to digitize some of those and put them on the web for the rest of us. We are. Okay, good, good. Over 200 are now being digitized. Okay, great. I want to see that. And then you won't have to print as many either. <laughs> Help yourself fill boxes. We have one young man at our conference, literally, both hands filled up to his and he says, Mr. You got a box I can put these under in? I said, We got boxes. So help yourself. The free handouts are free. <laughs> All right. And if we give them away, we'll save some trees. And the books are not free. <laughs> All right. I've got three questions here. I'm going to start with the bottom ones because they're shorter than the top one, but I'll get them all. All right. So, question number three How can one honor thy father and mother when dealing with an abusive? physical, mental, emotional, or manipulative parent or parents. This is not just about parents, but I would say with anybody who's manipulative, the most loving thing you can do is refuse to let them manipulate you. It'll frustrate them, but don't be manipulated by manipulative people. Uh, and you have to be spiritually mature to do that. But you can be loving to a manipulative mom and still refuse to let her manipulate you. She'll whine and tell you you're not being loving, but if you love her, your conscience should be clear. So, uh, but it, it isn't an excuse, and the same thing in marriage, it isn't an excuse to abandon that family member or that marriage. Uh, you, you, just because someone hurts your feelings or tries to manipulate you or whatever, uh, the marriage vow is more important uh, to try to preserve and maintain. There may come a time when the marriage will dissolve if you refuse to let the manipulative person manipulate you, but give it a try first. Question number two, are, how, how are we to interact with family members or close friends that embrace the homosexual lifestyle yet profess to be a Christian? That's a more complex question than you might think. Uh, Paul is pretty clear in 1 Corinthians where he says uh, you shouldn't have anything to do with a professed brother who lives in a sin like this. I don't think, though, that he's targeting family situations. So the question that often comes up is, I'm a parent, I have a, a son or a daughter who lives a gay lifestyle, professes to be a Christian, but they're gay. Uh, do I let them come to family gatherings, birthday parties, the Thanksgiving you know, celebration or whatever. Uh, and I take a little different approach maybe than some people. I would say, yeah, I wouldn't want to exclude them from the family, but you have to make sure that they understand that you have, you do not in any way countenance their lifestyle, that you want to see them repent, but you have to be like the prodigal's father, 
willing to have them back and eager to see them in your home. Um, Thanksgiving and occasions like that pose a particular dif difficulty because if this person professes to be a Christian and we're spending time around the table thanking the Lord, I don't want them participating in the prayer. And so I'd be very frank with that child or relative and say, and, and make my feelings known about that. Listen, you're willing to, you're, you're, you're welcome to come and, and, you know, be involved in this family event, but you are not invited to join in our prayers or because we don't believe your lifestyle honors God and it would be a sin to countenance that and, and try to give validity to the idea that they are actually believers. You also tell them very straightforwardly you're not permitted to promote this yeah, right. Oh, that's a big problem, too. In fact, I, I recently did a wedding in a family that has a situation like this. And uh, one, of the, one of the daughters is married to another woman, supposedly. And they've even adopted children. So they're fully committed to the lesbian lifestyle. And they wanted to come to this, fam this family event. But the other siblings have little children who they don't even want to be exposed to that. So it was a, it was a difficult situation for that family to sort out. They worked out a compromise where um, the, the couple who, who were living in sin could attend the wedding, but they weren't invited to uh, any of the family events where the children were going to be present. And those are difficult situations, and I'm not sure there's one right way to deal with all of them, because a lot of it depends on how willing the sinful family member is to to, you know, refuse to promote the lifestyle or defend it in front of children and that sort of thing. Uh, question number one. Churches changed how they gathered to worship with many churches, not all, that obeyed the mandate issued by the government. They shut their doors, they wear masks, they stay six feet apart, and so on, until they're told it's okay to meet with masks. A, what is the correct way to respond be like the churches who obeyed or the churches who didn't follow the mandate and continue to meet and worship as they did before the government mandates. And B, looking forward, how should churches respond when the next emergency pandemic occurs and the government or again orders everyone to shut down and mask up or worse, mandate it again? Uh, this is sort of a trial run, I think, that the government would, and this has always been the case, it's not new uh, in recent America, but through the history of, through all of church history, Caesar has wanted to intrude on that which belongs to Christ. And, you know, Jesus said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, and to God that which is God's. And so you render to Caesar obedience in matters of, you know, civil civil law and all of that, but Caesar does not have the right to come into the church and either shut it down or tell you how you can or can't worship and impose rules like they, they did in California, for example, saying churches could meet together but no more than 10 people at once and they had to meet outside and they had to stay eight feet apart and they had to wear masks and they couldn't sing. And in effect, they're saying, you can't meet in worship like normal. And that was when our church, Grace Church, said, no, we don't, we don't see the sort of imminent life and death threat. They're not stacking bodies like cordwood in the streets the way it was predicted when they first issued the mandate. And so we're going to start gathering to worship again. And we did. And of course, the government came after us. And there's a whole documentary, The Essential Church, that you need to watch to sort of understand it. How but get that? Is it, it streams it's on, YouTube. it's not on YouTube, but I, I don't think it's on YouTube yet. Very but it's, uh, it's on Netflix and all, all, several other streaming websites. If you Google it, you'll find it. Also, um, if you absolutely can't find it, email me and I'll send you a DVD of it, okay? Uh, but it's pretty easy to find streaming online. You may have to pay, you know, $6 or something like that to watch it. Trust me, it's worth it. Uh, it's really well done. And it explains, in light of church history, the significance of all of this. Caesar trying to intrude in the realm of where, where Christ is Lord. And uh, it sort of carefully 
explains why sometimes it's necessary to obey God rather than men. And, and when Scripture tells us, don't forsake the, the assembling of yourselves together, that's a command. That, that is God's word to us. And it doesn't mean, of course, that if you're sick or you have a communicable disease, you should still come to church anyway. If you're sick and, and you're contagious, stay home. That's fine. You're not violating that command, obviously. But when the government says even healthy people can't come to church, churches must remain closed, at the same time, they're sponsoring shoulder-to-shoulder riots in the streets and letting the massage parlors and gambling casinos stay open, but they say churches are not essential. That's the point at which you have to obey God rather than men, and which is what we did. But it convinced me that the next time the government issues uh, a shutdown command for churches, and when, like in this case, they specifically targeted churches, um, I don't, I don't intend to pay any attention to it. We'll, we will not close our church. Theoretically, it should be a moot question in light of the Supreme Court ruling. You may have uh, overlooked that. Uh, and go and read the, the findings. I mean, I think McCarthy and Grace, did they file like an amicus brief? They piggybacked. But the parties that won it, brought to the Supreme Court, were the Catholics and Jews of New York City that said, you're not closing our synagogues and our cathedrals, and they won. Supreme Court said, the Constitution is very clear. You cannot take away that freedom any more taken away from the freedom of the press. That caught the attention of liberals that will die for the freedom of the press. Now, this was kind of overlapping with cancel culture, but a lot of old-fashioned liberals said, you cannot close down the freedom of the press, and the others said, nor the churches, cathedrals, and synagogues, and the Supreme Court overwhelmingly said, you're right. But that's going to be challenged. That's what the law and the precedent is, but you know they're going to yeah. challenge that. Yeah. Yeah, so my answer to that question then is, uh, I think going forward, if another mandate like that comes from the government, any pastor that would ask me what to do, my advice would be, stay open. Uh, people don't have to come to church if they fear the contagion. But the government shouldn't be the sort of nanny state that, that imposes such a harsh rule that people for whom worship and fellowship is more important to them than life can't gather. Like, the government doesn't have the right to tell me that I, could, I should value my life more than I value my obedience to the Lord. Okay, I think we've covered quite a bit tonight. Oh, but one last question. You said you could send a DVD to anybody else. Is that a free DVD? <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a lot of them, but, as long, but I have a stack of maybe... 15 or 20 DVDs? We can take 50 for our handouts. Yeah. <laughs> I'll send so 20 you can duplicate it. Okay. Or, or if you were computer savvy, you could rip it and hand out, hand out bootleg MP3s to everybody. Okay. Well, if you have any more questions, come and see each of us here, but we appreciate these and we hope that they were helpful. Um, it's a little after at nine, so how about we close in prayer? Father, we thank you for your holy word that is sufficient to give us wisdom on each of these theological and practical questions. Your, your word gives light, so give us more light as we study it, and by your grace, live it. Now, may your blessing rest upon us until we meet again in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks, ma'am.